Welcome to Housing Developments. I'm Jerry Howard. And I'm Jim Tobin. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Jim. Uh, I know you're working hard now that uh, Congress is coming back into session. They're going to try and pass the social spending bill. What do you think? Yeah, uh, boy, it's uh, you know, Joe Manchin continues to be the speed break on that thing. I, you know, I, you know, we've we've talked about this. Uh, I really thought that they would get something done before uh, the holidays, before before Christmas in particular, if not you know, right up and on, onto Christmas Eve. I'm starting to doubt that now. I think this may actually bleed over into the new year. I uh, still think they get it done, uh, but but just maybe not this year. The good news is uh, they are gonna they are gonna pass. Uh, a uh, an extension of the of the debt ceiling. That's something NHB supports. We can't be defaulting on our debt. You know, we're watching what mortgage rates might do under that scenario. Uh, so that looks to be averted. They've passed a, a continuing resolution to fund the government into next year. So no government shutdown. That's a good thing. So the last big item, I think, unfortunately or, or fortunately, depending on your political persuasion, uh, rolls over into the new year. Well. Um... Well, time will tell on that one. I, I do know, though, speaking of the debt ceiling, that um, your wife called me this today and asked if I could convince you to raise her debt ceiling for Christmas spending. Well, it, it is the season, so uh, I'm not surprised. What'd you tell her? I told her, of course, as long as it was for the kids and not for you. There you go. It's for the kids. It's for the kids. <laughs> uh, well, Jerry, how's that? Uh, you know what? While we while we've got our, our friends here, we're gonna we're gonna have a, a kind of the second half of our political discussion. Uh, today, we're going to welcome in uh, the executive director of the NRCC, that's the Republican camp, House campaign arm, uh, to go along with our conversation with the DCCC uh, last episode. But before we do that, and welcome John in here. Tell me about IBS again. It's been a week since we've talked. How's IBS going? How's it shaping up for Orlando? You know, I, I'm getting even more excited. Uh, registration is coming along great. Uh, we are just ticking along. Uh, we, we're not going to be as big as we were in 2020, but we didn't expect to be. Uh, but we are going to have a very successful show. Uh, and I'm speaking of our registrants across the board, uh, from our builder members uh, to people in the industry who are not members, which will give us a chance to recruit, to dealer distributors, which are the people that our exhibitors like to see, all tracking very, very well. Uh, and we've still got a long time to go for registration. Space sales, uh, we're closing in on our goal already. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't reach the space sale goal before uh, we, before the Christmas break. So uh, looking forward to it. Again, uh, Magic Johnson will be coming uh, and we'll have some great entertainment there as well. So uh, it's going to be a super time. Yeah, it's always the place to be for the industry. So I know I'm looking forward to seeing everybody that uh, that first first week or first second full week of uh, February. Uh, well, with that, uh, why don't we why don't we welcome in our guests? Uh, well, it's it's my pleasure to introduce John Billings, uh, who is the executive director for the uh, NRCC, which is the National Republican Campaign Committee. The re-election and election arm of the uh, U.S. House of Representatives uh, Republican uh, Republican Party. Uh, John has been uh, in, in, in politics for, uh, for nearly two decades. He worked on Capitol Hill uh, as a chief of staff for three different members of Congress. Uh, and also worked for, for leading trade associations in the food, retail, and, and pharmaceutical industry. So he knows, uh, knows the world that we live in, Jerry, and, and the, uh, the, uh, the association side. Um, he's previously worked at the NRCC running the incumbent retention program 
which successfully helped get every incumbent reelected for the first time in 1994. In his current role, John oversees all facets of the operation of the committee. And, and John, before we get going, I got a funny story for you. So in your, in your bio, the first time you've really elected all the incumbents is 1994. My old boss uh, was um, in 1994 was, was Gary Franks from Connecticut, only the first one to lose uh, re-election in 1996 from that, that original uh, Republican wave class. Uh, he, he didn't do a good job of reminding everybody back home uh, that he was a, a member of Congress and got uh, summarily booted out in, in 1996. So uh, he might have been the start of that trend for you that you just broke. Uh, that's great. Well, first of all, I'll have a add a story to that. Um, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you guys and to your members. So my first boss was part of that class of 94 too, Charlie Bass from New Hampshire. <laughs> And I'm originally from Connecticut. Um, I grew up with Nancy Johnson as my representative. <laughs> so as I'll, we can talk about the elections, but one of the things I've done as the NRCC executive director, and we're not getting ahead of ourselves, but I, you know, I'm a New England person, worked for a member of New Hampshire when I began in politics and on the Hill, we had six house members from New England. Today we have zero. Um, So one of my goals and one of my guarantees is that there will be a Republican representative in the House of Representatives uh, from one of the New England states. Well, since I'm a New Englander, too, and I grew up right across the river from where you went to college in uh, in Queechee, Vermont, uh, let me ask you, is it possible, given the popularity of Vermont's governor and the fact that the Senate seat in Vermont is going to be open with uh, Leahy announcing his retirement. Vermont's tradition of the House member moving up to the Senate, that leaves potentially an open House seat in Vermont. Any chance that the governor of Vermont would be uh, a candidate for that? Because he's got like 78 percent approval rating in the state. You know, I would never say no one is not a potential candidate. I think you know, Vermont is a unique uh, state. And what's crazy, Jerry, is uh, I grew up in Queechee, too, at points. My parents had a house up there. So I'm very, very familiar with that area um, and love it up in the upper uh, Upper River Valley. Um, I, I think, quite honestly, there are a lot of opportunities out there, given the state of the Democratic Party and the unpopularity of President Biden and the, their policies, that it is opening up a lot of new territory that is going to be in play. And, you know, you get the right candidate with the right messages and then enough resources to get out those messages. Places like Vermont could be on the map. Um, again, I think New England has a unique thing of they tend to like their Republican governors. Uh, you look at Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Uh, Vermont, things like that. So I would never take any state out of or any district out of uh, play right now. Um, but it's places where, it's places like that we're looking. There you go. Well, we'll see. Um, let me ask you another question. And that is, Jim and I are talking about the Republican primaries and like you're looking at some of the people who are being challenged from within the party. It's pretty interesting. How do you all handle that fact? And what do you think it means to your chances going forward? At the NRCC, we do not get involved in uh, any primary election. 
Uh, that's we allow the voters of each of those districts to decide and the Republicans in those districts to decide who the best candidate is. I mean, our goal, though, it's I always say this job is a math equation. It's our responsibility to find at least 218 seats throughout this country um, that will be able to elect a Republican. And I think what's interesting about House races, I'll always say they're the largest local race on a ballot. If you think about anything above a congressional race is usually statewide. Um, so local issues matter, getting to know voters matter, talking about issues that are important to those voters matter. And you know whether it's a primary or general election, you know, getting the individuals that are really connecting and connecting on the issues important to voters today is what's going to matter in the end. Uh, John, do you do you do you think that um, you know, as Jerry Jerry mentioned in the, the in the primaries, um, do, do you how do you think President Trump plays uh, in some of those? I mean, that it's a challenge because he's endorsing the Republicans to run against some incumbents. Um, and certainly the Democrats are going to try to tie any any Republican candidate to President Trump. Yeah, uh, we saw that. We saw that, obviously, in the two uh, gubernatorial uh, elections that were uh, their ways just uh, just last month. Uh, and and you perhaps successful in New Jersey, certainly not successful in Virginia. What, what effect do you think President Trump has on your candidates in particular? So, I mean, the reality is and what we're seeing is pres- the former president's policies and agenda of lower taxes, fewer regulations, and uh, strong border security were immensely popular with voters and are immensely popular with voters. Um, And the issues have not changed in terms of what people truly care about. I think what you saw in Virginia and even in New Jersey, where the Republican gubernatorial candidate just came up short, that if they want to make the midterms about President Trump and trying to say every Republican is President Trump to invoke an emotional reaction among different voters, they're going to lose. Um, it did not work. And it's gotten to the point, um, even this week, a lot of the vulnerable Democrats have come out and said basically to the DCCC and to their party leaders, stop it. it it's a lot more than just saying Republicans are President Trump, we're failing to deliver on any of the issues that matter to voters. And we need an agenda and we need policies that they actually care about because this formula is broken, is not working and will not work moving forward. To to your point about about the president's agenda, the the, the party out of power uh, from the White House traditionally in a midterm election picks up on average 22 or 24 seats. I forget what exactly uh, it is. So so the odds are kind of in your favor. But talk a little bit about redistricting Um, in particular. We've we've watched some states uh, with with GOP uh, legislator legislatures. Uh, you know, they're drawing maps that are that are more favorable to Republicans. But in blue states, we're watching exact the exact same thing, yeah. uh, whether it's New York or California, or Illinois, where they are kind of kind of you know, crushing the, the, the GOP districts and making their delegations more Democratic to try to balance the scales. Tell me tell me how you approach the redistricting uh, issues over the next you know the, the previous couple of months, but then moving into before the primary season. So. <clears throat> 
I would say redistricting is kind of playing out in a way that we predicted. The biggest challenge with redistricting has been the delays um, with the problems with the census. The fact that we still won't know truly what the map is until, in some cases, March um, and finalize has really changed the playing field and kind of the strategy. But when I say it's happening like we expected, you know, we expected one, Republicans were in a very good position to begin with in terms of the amount of maps that we had influence in creating. And, you know, everyone will argue and I will argue the maps that are being created are fair um, based on the state laws in other states, you know, what we're seeing in Illinois, what we're seeing in Maryland. Um, a lot has been made about the Texas map and the DOJ uh, filing suit, claiming that it unfairly is breaking up cities to try and dilute minority populations. I hope they're doing the exact same thing in Maryland and Illinois, because if you look at how they broke up the city of Baltimore and how they broke up Chicago and taken slivers of Chicago and then drew a district out 80 miles into a rural area, if they want to be consistent, they would be doing that. But what we're seeing is the floor for each party is going to be raised. And the playing field in terms of competitive districts is kind of getting smaller. And there's two things we have going for us. One, the Republicans are better prepared for redistricting than ever before. Uh, an entity was formed called the National Republican Redistricting Trust. And it literally copies the entity that uh, former President Obama and Eric Holder are running on the Democratic side that the Democrats have had this mentality, we'd like to say, of sue until it's blue. And if you look at states like Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, since the amount of lawsuits and changes to those maps since the um, last redistricting, it kind of plays out that way. So we have an for, uh, entity that's ready to fight the legal battles, to defend fair maps, to challenge unfair maps when needed. But like I said, we're seeing the floor rise. Um, the battlefield and the amount of competitive districts will shrink. That's what happened after the 2010 redistricting session. Um, so we're just kind of laser focused on one, once we get a map is to really ensure that we got the right candidates. You know, one thing we've been really proud of is uh, our recruitment efforts. And, you know, you go back to last cycle when we flipped 15 seats, every single seat that was flipped was either by a female a uh, member of a minority community and or a veteran. Um, the chairman had made it a priority and our leadership had made it a priority that we started having candidates that actually reflected what we knew the Republican Party looked like, that we knew that actually looked like what they were people were seeing on their own main streets and those should be their representatives. So we're kind of focused on that. We're, you know, hoping that, or we want redistrict, I want personally redistricting to just get done with so that I actually know what the playing field is. Um, but we're in the spot we thought we'd be. You, you, you mentioned um, the Republican Party and the number of women and minorities uh, that were elected last time. Um, can you talk a little bit about that in a little bit more detail? Because I read some interesting polling today that says that among Hispanics right now, it's an exactly even split on those that consider themselves Republicans and those that consider themselves Democrats. And that was kind of a surprise to me. Yeah, well, 
What's very interesting, and obviously we've been looking into a lot of that. We've been doing battle, uh, what we call our battleground polling, which are um, issue polls that we do across 85 districts. And these are districts that are, you know, we're Biden one by five or Trump one by five and everything in between, but where we see the majority won our loss. And they're primarily a third Republican, third independents, third Democrats. So your swing of swing districts. And to me, and this, this will tie back into kind of what we're seeing with Hispanics, but the issue, when you ask a Republican what their top issues are, it's been border security, jobs in the economy, rising costs of goods. You ask a Democrat what their top issues are, it's been healthcare, climate change, and a, usually a tie between COVID-19 concerns and jobs in the economy. If you ask an independent what their concerns are, it's jobs in the economy, rising costs of goods, government spending, all economic issues. So what we're seeing is our issues are overlapping with what independents truly care about. And the exact same thing is happening with a lot of Hispanic voters. I think Democrats have had the challenge lately of looking at the Hispanic community as a monolith and not really understanding what drives them and what really drives a lot of individuals in the Hispanic community is their ability to achieve the American dream. They have a huge belief in American exceptionalism and they're seeing that ability to gain that or to gain their, their version of the American dream being taken away by some of the economic factors, some of the government spending in the uh, increased government programs, and it's not what they want. You know, we won, we flipped two seats down in South Florida with Carlos Jimenez and Maria El Salazar. And quite honestly, the messaging that worked down there was talking about socialism. You had communities of individuals and families that left their country that where they came from because of socialism to escape those kind of policies. And here, those are the things they're hearing about, talked about in the news and by the Democratic Party. And that's not what they want. That's not why they came to this country. Do you parse that kind of data and polling down into the various breakouts of the Hispanic community? Because I, I can see that being very important, obviously, in South Florida with the Cuban-Americans. Does that same argument play in New York City with other types of Hispanics or in California uh, in the West with Mexican-Americans? Um, do you break it down in that level of detail? We will eventually because it goes back to the House races being the largest local race. Like when we go into the district, we will find the messages that work best in the district that we are competing in. You know, last cycle, we flipped a seat in Oklahoma. The vast amount of messaging in that was about energy. Um, here you have it's Stephanie Bice's seat. She defeated Kendra Horn. And you had votes from Kendra Horn that hurt the oil and gas industry. But what are all the jobs in Oklahoma? It's oil and gas. So whether it's with the Hispanic communities, whether it's with any other, we will find the data and crack down and understand the local issues that's going to drive voters in that district. We're not, you know, that's another thing the chairman is very focused on when he came was we do not do cookie cutter stuff here. We really look at what works in a, a district 
and is going to make a difference among those voters. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say, you know, John, what, what keeps you up at night? What's uh, what, what's the what, what what's the what are the things that you worry about? Uh, your your plan uh, doesn't ex- result in, uh, in winning back the majority. Probably the biggest thing that is keeping me up is this belief that it's almost that the election has already happened, that, you know, people are, you know, the house is going to flip and things are great. We still have 10 months. So it's complacency that is keeping me up at night and that anyone would take something for granted. We're taking nothing for granted. I mean, we have not won anything yet. Like I said, we have 10 months to the election. So that is the message we're driving home with our members, with our team of let's focus on what we can control. That's recruiting great candidates, helping them raise money to have the resources. And then let's stick to the messages we know voters care about. You know, it's I think we've showed the video from Ronald Reagan in his first debate against Jimmy Carter, just asking that question. Do you think you're better off than you were four years ago? And you know, we can look at a lot of the issues, the rising cost of goods. Every single time someone swipes their credit card at the grocery store right now, they're reminded just how much inflation is impacting them and their family. Let me ask the question a little bit differently. The, okay. the, the headlines have, have been teetering toward two things. The first is the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. And the second is a foreign affairs issue um, with the Russians amassing forces in the Ukraine or on the border of the Ukraine and the the, the Chinese flying fighter uh, formations over Taiwan. If Russia or China do uh, make an aggressive action in one way or another, um, how does that impact um, the potential messaging uh, that that people are going to want to hear about? And perhaps more importantly, and more to the point, when the Supreme Court decides uh, the abortion case, if it comes out uh, in the more conservative vein, does that not become an election year issue? And how will you guys handle that? I think a lot of those, I mean, it does go back to, it's hard to speculate exactly how individuals will react and I, you know, um, and how the public will react. I know with the foreign policy issues right now, there's a real challenge within the Biden administration. um, And the themes that we've seen develop is that the American public do not believe Biden and the Democrats are competently running this country and do have extreme concerns about the way they've handled things. It was exemplified by our withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think, you know, you look at polling and no one had a problem. I think it was 60 to almost 70 percent of the American people supported the concept of leaving Afghanistan, that we needed to end that war. And um, they did not see that as an issue. But they did not want to see us leave in the manner that we did and the challenges and the tragedies that fell upon that departure and quite honestly playing it all out on the, the news. Um, as for the Supreme Court decision, we'll let the courts make their case. And it's going to be an issue that is going to be extremely important in some races. Um, and we'll allow our members to kind of decide what is best for them on that. Jim, do you have another any other questions? No, no, no. I was gonna, I was gonna start to wrap up, Jerry. I think you know, John. We appreciate your time uh, so much to come uh, to well, come we, to come on with us. 
I don't want to step on your lines here, Jim, but we got to ask him for the prediction, the ultimate prediction. All right, fair enough. The ultimate prediction? We need five seats to get the majority. I guarantee you those five seats, and we'll let the voters decide how big that majority is going to be. <laughs> there you go. All right, then I'm going to ask one more hypothetical question, a rumor that was floating around here today uh, that, I, that I read is that um, President Trump will run for speaker if the Republicans regain the majority. Um, have you heard that? Do you give it any credence whatsoever if you have? I have not heard that. I, I will be blunt and to say that I think Leader McCarthy has done an incredible job um, leading our conference and has earned the ability to be speaker. And we want to deliver that speakership to him. He's helped raise uh, a ton of money for the NRCC. He's helping our members and our candidates. Uh, we just announced a first group of eight young guns that he's endorsed. So I've been really focused mostly on giving Leader McCarthy the opportunity to become speaker. And um, we'll st that's that's how I see it playing out. Fair enough. Well, we we, we appreciate it, John. Uh, thank you for uh, for for coming on and, and, and visiting with Jerry uh, and me today, and and giving us your insights in the elections upcoming. You certainly have your work cut out for you. Uh, you know, the, it, it's uh, like you said, ten months ago, there is there has been a lot of said, a lot being said that this is somehow a uh, fait accompli. Uh, but that's not not whether uh, elections are run, as Jerry said. There's external factors that that can happen. There's there's all kinds of stuff that can go go right or wrong uh, in the next ten months. So. Um, you know, wish you the best of luck uh, Thank you. in your endeavor to, to, to take back the majority for the Republicans and, uh, and, and appreciate everything you do and your members do to, uh, to support the housing industry. No, thank you very much. And I encourage all your members to go out and vote in 10 months and uh, vote Republican. <laughs> all right. Well, Merry Christmas, John. Thanks for everything. Let us know how we can help you. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Interesting stuff on huh, Jim. I, I, he's pretty confident that they're going to get at least the five seats they need. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing. It show it shows. Uh, I think people uh, underestimated the work that they did in the in the the 2020 election. That you know you had obviously the the, the big ticket Trump Biden campaign, um, but the fact that the the Democrats in the House were unable to expand on their majority with with the top of the ticket their top of the ticket winning. Um, but because the Democrats retained the majority in the House, no one really kind of looked at the numbers and, and the fact that they only need five seats to take back. And as I, you know, as I said in the interview, you know, traditionally the party out of power gains, uh, you know, over 20 seats. You know, if you're John Billings, you got to feel pretty good about things. Uh, I, I did enjoy his, his answer about the Trump as speaker uh, theory. So uh, we'll, we'll see if that comes to fruition. Well, it will be interesting. And, and I, we didn't ask him how many Republican seats are vulnerable that they have to really put up a strong defense against. But it, it didn't seem to matter. He, he thinks they're going to retake the House majority, which is what he's supposed to think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's his job. So and so uh, the time will tell. Uh, Jim, this is our uh, our last podcast before Christmas. Yep. Um, so I'd like to wish you and your family. A very Merry Christmas and uh, same to our listeners. Happy holidays. Uh, we'll see you in, in 2022. 
Merry Christmas to you and yours, Jerry. Enjoy uh, enjoy the holidays and look forward to seeing you in early January. Bye-bye. Take care.